Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. To those of you listening for the first time, I am Emma, your podcast host. And each week I'm out and about chatting to Londoners and those who love, live and work in this big and glorious city. Today my guest is Alicia Colson, who actually visited the bookshop on many occasions and it was great to catch up with her and walk and talk through a part of London which I had not been to for a long time, talking about archaeology, her experiences as an ethno-historian and we also talk about the boreal forest where Alicia completed her PhD. We'll talk about Namibia, chocolate and avocado. Enjoy. Oh well it's a bit of a windy morning this morning and we're at the Imperial War Museum where I've just met up with Alicia Colson. Hello Alicia. Hello Emma. It's been a while. Yes it has. <laughs> I'm glad we agreed to meet today and not yesterday when Storm Barrow was crashing around us and uh, it was all kinds of weather wasn't it yeah it was but it's still very windy but we'll do our best to stay out of it and we're going to walk and talk about archaeology and everything else in between sounds good yeah so we're going to walk from the grounds or the gardens of the imperial war museum is this a favorite place of yours um i like walking through it actually do you did you used to walk through here to get to the bookshop yeah, I did. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I'd walked past it, actually. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on that far route over there, up, up past it, or sometimes through it. Okay. So, and through the, there's a path that runs through it, and there's some trees, and the trees are always amazing, and the far line, which is on the edges of the Kennington Road, has flowers of different times in different parts of the year. Yeah. And in the summertime, that far corner, which sort of looks very desolate now, given the winter time. It is. It's, it's, it's just got loads of autumn leaves dancing across the, uh, the grass, haven't well, we? Well, actually, in the summer, it's actually chock-a-block with um, meadow flowers. It's so pretty. That's right. Actually, I remember there's also the daffodils. Yeah. Amazing yeah. carpeted Amazing daffodils. Carpet. So. And so the carpets have increased in size of daffodils, and they've increased the quantity, especially in that corner, there's incredible sort of wild poppies and flowers, and so it's totally not mown and it's really pretty it's yeah such a, it's, it's sort of like oh, i'm not in a manicured environment no it's quite unusual for london really exactly, isn't it yeah. mind you more and more parks are yeah leaving yeah. the wild flowers for a bit longer yeah. before they yeah. um, so these mow like, them all off. i don't think they mow them at all don't and they no and they and so because i've seen it when some the north would see the guy who mows the grounds has mown the grounds but he leaves them alone he, leaves, he, he mows around them <laughs> rather, mows than around them. Them, rather than through them it's like yay <laughs> But they're really, really pretty, and it's just like I'm so glad because you know, nature isn't sort of manicured. No, it's got its own method of doing things. It does. Things. It has its own way. Which direction are we? We can go down St George Street, and then walk through Elephant, and then cross. You'll see the new Elephant because that whole sort of block is gone now. Yes, it has, hasn't it? What a big difference. Okay, and yeah, let's yeah, do yeah. that. And yes. then you can sort of we can walk through the Latin American, South American area which is really cool okay yeah i really like it is it because i was very disappointed because it was an amazing hub wasn't it for the south american community with the markets and and the shops and everything but have they have some of them still survived or has some of them have survived and they've put them in they've made a i don't know who it was must have been the local council or, or the developer or whomever have made it possible to have lots of little shops so they've all moved and they're moving in and there's Sayer Street, I think it's called. I always get it, say it incorrectly. It's incredible. So it is like little, little South Latin, South America. And what makes it interesting is that you also get shops from Korea and Chinatown and sort of, so it's, 
sort of this really eclectic mix of South America, yes. stroke, Asia, Asia. <laughs> which, is, which is nice in a way, but yes. it sort of always reminds me of the fact that there's one of the largest, there's a large Japanese community in Brazil, and they came in the early, I think it was the late 19th century. I always think of that example whenever I, I'm like, oh, look, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's right next to this South American area. And of course, your interest in Brazil is because, were you born there? No, or I used you, to live there. You lived there? I lived a... there as a child. I went there when I was seven, six, we went to school, and I forgot English. That's why I learned Brazilian, so I learned or how to Portuguese, read and write Portuguese. Or Brazilian Portuguese. It's actually slightly different. Yeah. They don't swallow their vowels. Okay. So, um, give me an example between the two. Well, if you listen to Portuguese, it sounds, some people sometimes mistake it for Russian, but that's because they hear all the consonants. Well, the Brazilians tend to sing and they all, they, when they speak. Yeah. Whereabouts in Brazil? I, in southern you? Brazil, which is uh, Ilha de Santa Catarina, is there's a southernmost archipelago and it has about, oh, I now know, 33 islands. And, okay. And Where? one large island, which is several times the size of the Isle of Wight. Right, so it's quite big. it is big, yes. Has th now it has three, three national parks in it. It's got the last sort of remaining example of coastal rainforest. Um, has freshwater lagoons. My live, goodness. We live by the side of a freshwater lagoon. Oh, wow. Um, so you, were, you lived there, but at that time, I suppose you had no idea that you were going to be an archaeologist or I like going to archives and forts and sort of exploring and well I was only six seven I didn't really know anything about that and I just thought it was I liked talking to people <laughs> <laughs> so as an adult did you end up going back there I, for any um particular yes, research here will be quiet okay no I went back just to visit and it was strange because I discovered sort of the fact that I really like certain things such as a, a sort of sweet and savoury combination, which is very things like cheese and apricot jam and tuna fish mayo, which sounds disgusting in English, but actually it's quite pleasant. <laughs> it is. Well, I like the cheese and fruit mix. Okay. And that's very Brazilian. Cheese and cheese and fruit, yes, like apple and cheese. Yeah, or like I like to apricot jam and cheese is great. Yes. Or, but. Uh, I, and, I, and I discovered a lot of people who, when I was a teenager in England, because I didn't watch any of those English TV shows. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no idea, can't connect. No. Sorry. <laughs> Don't ask me about that cultural references. <laughs> it's sort of gone over my head. So what it meant was, when I went back, I discovered, okay, I understand why I like those combinations. Okay. I understand why certain flavours appeal to me, or bright colours, or yes. why is it... I really like bright colours. I find a hard time with pale colours. What I discovered in Brazil is very bright. Yes, yeah. Pale colours are completely washed out. Yes. They don't work. So I was like, oh, okay. So things like that. Interesting. And expression, the ways of expressing things. Sometimes I think it's some things are expressed better in Brazilian than in English. Because in English, you just can't really say it. But that's because it sort of prompted my interest in words. Sometimes you can express visual things far easier in Brazilian than you can in English. Okay. So it made me, made me start thinking about, I realised why was I interested in words and interested in visual stuff. Yes. But that's because in Brazil people will be really eloquent in terms of how they express visual imagery but they may not necessarily know how to read and write. 
You can cross through here, through the park, okay. and then come up. This is West Square. I love this, this West square. square. I like this square. It's always slightly unkempt, which I like about it. <laughs> Maybe that's very rude to say for the people who look after it. Maybe it's the times I've come through, it's always slightly unkempt. Maybe it's always winter. Maybe that's the problem. Um, I like I, it because... But I like it. I like it. The these mulberry trees are out. I didn't realise they were mulberry trees. They're mulberry trees. Yeah, they have mulberries. Do they? Yeah, they're a bit... Um, well, this year they were a bit bitter. Okay. But I think there wasn't enough rain to make sure that they were sort of plump. Yeah, yeah, yes. Have you, so you've harvested? I took, no, I wouldn't say them. harvest, I picked them <laughs> picked occasionally. Them. <laughs> I tried them. <laughs> I wanted to see what they were like because I picked them when my grandparents, my father's parents lived on the Isle of Wight on the coast. There was a big garden next to it which we were allowed to explore. It was a house that was formerly lived in by Nelson's mistress. Emma okay. Hamilton. Yes. So they had a huge old mulberry tree which everyone used to climb. And I remember climbing it mulberry season time, ate them, and I remember I had a t shirt on and it got completely covered in stains. I remember going back to my grandmother's again, she's eating mulberries again, and I'm like, no. And she's like, yes. <laughs> They're all over you. They're all over you. <laughs> the remains of. They stain, so they stain really badly. But I know they're delicious. But, and they were big plump monsters but these things I don't think they had enough rain okay so they were a bit sad and bitter this year but they should be sweet and quite nice yes yes so now we've come out onto Austral Street. Austral Street Austral Street coming back to Brazil then so Brazil you you spent some of your formative years yeah so obviously the Brazilian and then now Portuguese has stuck as language yeah and then did you come back to the UK because I came I'm back to the UK and discovered I didn't speak English and I thought I did. My parents tried really hard to make sure that we learned English and to the point they used to read us all the English classics because my sister and I had all the, the wind in the willows. We yeah. looked at the pictures. Yes. But ah, but you didn't take in the words. No. So you didn't know. Interesting. No. So, so that was a huge shock to your parents, no doubt. It was a huge they shock. Had, they, had, <laughs> they had two children that couldn't actually read English, but you could obviously speak it. No. You couldn't speak Not it? Not very well, no. Okay. No, we thought we were speaking English. Right. We didn't know we were speaking Brazilian. <laughs> so from to the then, point, my sister was very sad when she went to school and just said, "Oh, but no one speaks English." <laughs> Sometimes you hear it here with uh, the young French children at the at the lycée, and they're speaking English and French all at the same time. Um, uh, that, no, was that it, was you, um, no, it wasn't even that because I've done that in Quebec when I lived in Quebec. We used to mix. We used to sort of pick whichever language we felt like using and then pick, splatter all the words in to fit accordingly because we knew that the people who were around us were actually multilingual. So you came back to school? Came back to school here. Yes. It was strange because in the schools, you know, they often expect you to have the same cultural references and they thought I was slightly weird because I didn't sound the same or couldn't connect. But in retrospect, it was because I was just learning in English again. Yes. Here the whole time I did sort of A-levels at Sixth Form College, went to UCL, Which is uh, University University College, College London. London. Did archaeology thinking, you know, I like, it'd be fun to be outdoors and do something. Because I like exploring. Okay. And that obviously came from your very early years in, in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sort of wandering around, yeah. So when did Canada come into all of oh, this? Oh, my That's mother's cool. parents, they were American from Chicago. They had gone up to Canada in the 1930s with my grandfather, my great uncle, canoed up there. And um, he canoed. They drove 18 hours and then you canoed up to Red Lake, which is 
maps back in the 30s were quite basic. They still, in some regions of Canada, they still are. Um, they were mapped by push plane. So just a plane that just flies, a plane o- flies over. Yes. And so they had some maps. And so he and his brother went on a canoeing trip. And that's when he just, he just decided he wanted to go to spend there because he was a wildlife photographer. Okay. And filmmaker. So he ended up buying some property there. And he used to go, and go there and do stuff for, I don't know, four to six months a year. Mm-hmm. And then go back to Chicago. But then the war came along, as in World War Two, But it was 1941 when the US went into the war. And so he was commanded making films for the U.S. Armed Forces. Mm-hmm. So he went, obviously, in the part of the war effort to do that. And then we went to Canada, really, because he retired from the States to Canada. He'd worked in Hollywood in advertising. He didn't really like it. Okay. And so he wanted to go and be a sculptor and go to the, the backwards. So he went to where he had always, he went in the 30s and 40s, because in the 40s he'd run, a, before the war, he'd won a, a boys' camp. I don't know how much you know about sort of North American society, where you often have these camps where kids are sorted out, where they have sort of behavioural problems. Or So he ran a camp for boys where they went fishing and canoeing, and where kids would go to six weeks and they'd be straightened out. Okay, in gosh. In North America. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. It's not, Did that they? <laughs> not that bad, really. But, so, so far, they're being straightened out, but I, I imagine they've just, um, it's also s- such a, a change of environment for them that it was a. Uh, they sort of, they, so they sort of learned, learned a sense of self and things like that. Hello. 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 <laughs> Father of Alicia, very well. Thank you. Lovely to see you. But we're in mid, mid conversation, so we've got to keep going. Uh, and I'm late. Oh, okay. Bye bye. Lovely bye. to see you. <laughs> How extraordinary was that? <laughs> there totally we go. unplanned. <laughs> and um, they go on canoeing trips, camping, fishing, wilderness skills. How sort did you end up then there? Going there because, you're because he went, so this is it's a long story, he was there. That was your mother's father. father your gra- yeah. My grandmother, they had got divorced in the 60s, seven, in, their, in their 60s, but in the 70s. She had moved to southern Ontario to be near my uncle, who had also moved from the States to Canada. Yes. And which is quite normal. Okay. Actually, in North America, lots of people do it. Yes. So we went to visit him. He was quite strong minded. It was a bit bossy because he was a film director, so he was used to sort of telling people what to do. And a friend of his, who was a regional archaeologist, but the area he looked after was about the area of the size of Germany and France. When you say looked after, looked after in terms, in terms of government official. So he'd come to visit for the day because people would, when they come and visit in that part of the world, because it's so remote, it's like people would drive an hour to go and see some friends. Right. Yes, because of the vast distances. Yes. So he popped by on the way to somewhere, some other, because he was a regional archaeologist. So it meant that he would have to check the work of all the other archaeologists who were working below him. Right. So it meant that he would drive from excavation to excavation and on his way from one excavation to another one he'd stop and visit friends. Yes. And that time he Makes stopped. Sense. Makes sense. <laughs> if you got to drive past it you might as well say hello. But you'd drop in and say hello for coffee. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing. You never know when people are coming. They just drop by and he said, oh, what are you doing on this day? I'm going, you know, if you want to come and volunteer in an excavation about 45 minutes south, come for the day. Mm-hmm. You would have to be, because so he said he would come at six in the morning, pick me up, and then 
spend the whole day there and he'd, on, he'd go and do some other stuff, check out some other sites that are being excavated and then drive past and he could pick me up and then, and then drop me off yes. and then have another cup of coffee. <laughs> and I, I said, why not? And that's how I got involved in, in northwestern Ontario because okay. it was, it, it's, what's it like? It's the boreal subarctic. So was this after you'd already no, it was completed before. your archaeology? No, this is, so this is what before. got you, sparked your interest in, in it was before. It was before I was, I was at secondary school. Okay. And um, I knew I, want, I liked history. I thought of doing history, but um, I liked anthropology because my mother was an anthropologist. But I remember asking where to do history, and my dad was like, oh, my blah, 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 blah friend is here, and blah, 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 friend is there. And I kept thinking, well, I can't go to a department where you know someone. I'd oh. like to go somewhere where you actually don't know someone. <laughs> and how do I achieve that? <laughs> how do I get away from all these people? <laughs> exactly. Well, nobody will know me. Exactly. Never worked. <laughs> Plus, it didn't work. I thought, well, I'll pick archaeology. It's in the middle. It's not history, it's not anthropology, but it's in the middle. Actually, you have to deal with all three, I know now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Shall we go up this side street to get to the top of Air Elephant and Castle? Or will yeah. we miss all the... The stuff is all down that side. Is it? Oh, well, yeah. then let's go this side. I'm um, just thinking it's really noisy. It's fine. We'll, we'll manage for a little while and then we'll okay. go off. Wow, look at the... I can't look believe Look at it. This. I thought I'd show you. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my goodness. It's just all apartment blocks. Yeah, but over, if you and cross, the shard. and the shard, and if you cross over the other side of the train station, it's a park. Crikey, this is all right. I'm I'm completely flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a while because I came through Elephant Castle on the bus, but the whole of the middle section was still open, but it's now all boarded off. Yeah, it's com it's it's all dirt. There? If you if you can wander around this side, and they have. They change fairly frequently, but these uh, cellophane windows where you can look in, oh, yes. and it's just, just dirt and hole. <laughs> so we're going to walk towards where you wanted the... to go the park. So if we yeah. go round, okay. So if you go across where those people are crossing right now, yes. and then we'll go the bottom end of the the hole instead of the okay, and then you'll we'll pass by a lot of the sort of South American and. Do you see, you know the other entrance to Elephant Castles over there? Yes. Then there is a corner, and underneath that corner was this 1960s building, which is sort of nondescript and pretty yes. grim, brutalist. Yes. The, the ground floor has now got some of those little shops. Oh, has it? Okay. Yeah. It's a shock, isn't it? So It is a big shock, actually. Because the, there was another 1960s building that seems to have disappeared, where there was the market. And Over here. Yeah. Yeah, it was that huge. It's only just come down, has it? Yeah. And it took ages because they were taking it piece by piece. Yes. It's like a whole piece of history has just disappeared. Yes. It's, yes. I've never seen it quite like that. It's quite shocking. It's, it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, the first time uh, I came, I didn't really notice it had been there. That they were actually working on it until I took the train, the overland, and it was just like, what? What? I can see through see what's the building. Happened. So anybody who knew Elephant and Castle, well, even five years ago, even two years ago, or even a few months ago, you, oh really, um, will have to come back 
and see for your own eyes how it has changed and it really not has sure it's changed. for the better but I suppose I'm not really in a position to judge until know. until I go and visit what's here but it's hard to see what is here except for apartment blocks. On the other side of the train tracks it's quite interesting it's completely not what I expected. Yeah. Uh, I remember coming out of when the end of the first lockdown and well during the first lockdown I remember walking around here and you get these high-speed sports cars racing up and down it was nuts yeah but as it is you know Elephant Castle is still just one big traffic jam isn't yes. it? it's all it's a big bus yeah. bus hub isn't it where <laughs> you can go in many directions from 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 here but and it's just multiple pedestrian crossings as well and it seems even windier but maybe um, this is just the end of Storm Barra whipping its last <laughs> this windy is, gusts at us. <laughs> this is always changing this area. It's partly so a student area as well I think. Yeah there's lots of little South American shops there. Okay. Um, are there any that are a favourite for you? Um, some of them are, are so new I don't know. Yeah. Brazilian hair salon. There's there. a pineapple, there's a Brazilian hair salon. Yeah. Okay, so maybe I do need to come and explore Down a little here, bit. there's a panaderia, the Colombian. Okay, so there's that's... lots of little Colombians and, uh, and Ecuadorians down that street. I didn't really notice it until lockdown, and then I noticed that lots so of. What is the name of that street? It's something walk. Hang on. Is this the way we want to be going anyway? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. So Casa Colombia, Panaderia, and it's called Maldonado, Maldonado Walk. Yeah. So they're literally um, just in the the railway the, arches. The railway arches underneath the railway line. So come and check it out, guys. It's worth it. The, the food area. is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've often uh, there's there's a Ecuadorian place. I've been for hot chocolate and cake. Hot chocolate and cake? Yeah. Sounds I'm, great. It's great. <laughs> Look at this. My goodness. So everything is just boarded up. It's like big gashes being taken out of the, um, out of the landscape. And more, more apartment blocks. But so again, I la vida loca. And this is like a tiny little supermarket. Every little sh there's tiny little stores underneath here. It's amazing. It's just a little supermarket, is it? It's, well, it's sort of not the supermarket. There's like a travel agent. Chatica. A cafeteria. I don't know what you call it in English. Um, little place where you can go and get coffee and cake and okay, like and a sandwiches. Cafe, really. Ca cafe, yeah. And Chatica, cafe, deli, and bakery. Oh, this is in. This one's Colombian. Yeah. They do really good arepas and all sorts of things and coffee and sugar and. This one is like printer clothing El photo. Arco del Centro. Yeah. If you can't pick it up, drag it. <laughs> yes. Have you seen this? Castle Square. My goodness. So this is uh, almost. Oh no! It's like a replica of the uh, of the ele elephant castle with the elephant on the corner. Does that come from the original? No. I don't know. It looks too small. It's also red. It's not pink, is it? Wow. Oh, this is the um, the Andes shop. That's a supermarket. It's incredible. It has the most oh. amazing 
vegetables like yucca and avocados which are huge not your house avocado your yeah. south american avocado oh, which are enormous okay wow i'm definitely that's called distria di distiandina distiandina the latin taste and okay. everything in there is from the sort of the andes colombia ecuador so yeah. if you cross over you can see what all like not not good if you want to be um thinking the environment sustainability <laughs> no. if your avocado and your whatever has come from argentina or however colombia colombia well, otherwise it's from mexico it's the same problem yeah yes it's always a dilemma now we've gone elephants galore crikey like a little a children's park i do, yeah well um, you can't climb on them that's the sort of so oh, i don't really know why they're here i just think they're just here to show, to show. Well, you can sit on of the smaller ones, but... So what is this park called then? Castle Square, okay. This is Castle Square. This is lots of the little shops that are actually under... If you look at the names, you can... They, they obviously... Ah, they come from the... Come other. from the other place. Laughland Communications. Doesn't sound very um, South American, but there we go. No. Original Caribbean El, Spies. El Guambra does, <laughs> but... Oh, we'll have to come and come and investigate when we got a little more time. Well, thank you for introducing me to this area, this year, because it's, <laughs> right. it's a bit. I'm in a bit in shock, though. No, you look like you're in. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what I was expecting at all. It also is very landscaped, isn't it? It's very landscaped. It's by an Australian company, apparently. The is the developer. Coming back to your archaeology, we kind of sidetracked there a bit, but. So you completed your degree, and and then and then and then I was just like, I, um, what am I going to do? Uh, it's all very well doing so, through. And I had in the time I'd actually been working in the summer in northern Ontario, uh, surveying areas of land that some of it became provincial parks, and looking learning how to sort of bush skills. So how do you live for through up to three weeks at a time in the middle of nowhere? So I used to go from there to here, come back to London and sort of go, oh, this is too much of a shock. It was, shock, a, bit of, it was a real shock, shock for yes. about a few weeks and then it was okay. Got used to it. Um, but I realised I liked that contrast. Okay. So the question was like, how do you do that? And that was the tough one. So, and I, I did some sort of temping jobs, did some, and tried different things and just applied to do stuff really. And, how easy, having got a, your degree in archaeology, was it to, to then find digs or uh, projects that interest you? I mean, is, there, is it a case that there is a lot out there, but there's also a lot of competition for it? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's, uh, it was horribly hard, but I also realised uh, I hadn't gone through the sort of the British system whereby you are on excavation all the time, but that's because I hadn't specialised in British archaeology. Okay. So it's actually really so what was your specialism? Well, it's the Americas, really. Okay. So this is where your love of the, the boreal forest came Come from. Yeah. And the and boreal for forest is actually in the center, central part of it, Canada, no, is it? It's the forest that goes right around the Circumpolar. It's the green area. It's one of the lungs. It's like the Amazon. Okay. And it's, it's called the boreal forest, but it's a mixture of lakes and trees and swamps and coniferous woods and um, kind of projects were surveying, 
finding sites because some areas have been mapped by bush plane and they, I was sort of one of the first groups, teams of people who've been in there after forestry, really. Okay. Um, I realised I liked the challenge of finding new things, as in, okay, this is, how do we deal with this? How do we understand it? And meeting and working with people who live there all the time. Yes. And how do you explain things that actually might seem quite integral to somebody who lives there all the time, but actually isn't. And so what does the boreal forest sort of mean to the rest of the world? Well, it's a lung, basically. Mm -hmm. It's a huge lung. And a lung. very important. Very important. Lung. And it's incredibly fragile. And I went to, I, I met sort of people who were gold miners, gold prospectors, um, learnt how to think about soil samples in terms of the gold quantity that come out because the area is actually an industrial forest it's already always being used. The boreal for forest work that you're doing is integral to try in, in terms of trying to protect it its future. Well it's to think about its future and I'm working now I'm working it's connected now I'm working with a an elder from a northern community because he they have these paintings which have you know rock paintings and the thing is the a lot of the academics will say, oh, it's part of their animism. It's, uh, it's connected to animism. Well, these communities are actually animate. They practice animism, as in everything is alive. Okay. Um, there's a spirit, or you know, the rocks are alive, the trees are alive. It might sign cuckoo, but it's, it's a different way of looking at the world and understanding that we're actually, we as human beings are very much part of it, uh, one of many components. We're not the only thing. So I was contacted this March by an elder saying, I've read your work. Yeah, I like your PhD supervisor because I ended up going to McGill in, in Montreal to do a PhD because mm -hmm. I, what I realized during, after my first degree, is what I realized is actually interested in how the intellectual frameworks of understanding the past affect how we read the past. Mm -hmm. So you might have several ways of looking at the world, but the, the, the mindset you have will dictate the bits of information that you put together to try and understand your puzzle. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I realized all of the archaeologists here were saying, you have to take this approach, this being the post-processional approach. And I was, I was just like, it doesn't make sense. But uh, why a post, what's it? Post? It's called post-processual. Post-processual. But it really means the archaeologist concerned will say, well, I think it's this, and so you have to agree with me. And I kept thinking, but the evidence doesn't always add up. Mm. What do I, you know, that's like having a puzzle, because the problem is when you're understanding archaeology, you have a puzzle, you have lots, you just have a jigsaw, you have all these pieces, but you don't have all the pieces. So you're trying to fit the pieces together, and you don't really know what the picture was. Okay. And yeah. you don't know all the connections and the likelihood of you not having all the pieces. It's a bit like one of those puzzles that you buy in a second-hand shop. Yeah, there's always a few pieces missing. <laughs> and you're just like, I know it fits here! And you're busy trying to squish it in. Yeah. Yes. yes, and it, that's what it is. Okay. Like, that's what archaeology is like. So what did this elder, what, what did he want you he, to he get want, involved he, with specifically? He wanted me, uh, to talk about some painting, a site, an archaeological site, a pictograph site that his father had painted. And what did the images mean? 
because usually what happens is an archaeologist or an anthropologist will say, oh, I'm interested in this group of people and see whether they can go and visit them and ask them some questions. Mm -hmm. So it was a bit of a role reversal. Yeah. So he essentially, he was saying, I want to talk to you rather than being saying, oh, I fancy talking to you. And yeah. um, usually if, if it's the, it's the other way around, other way, yeah, the researcher goes in, then obviously there's a risk that the researcher's just going to be told stuff. Yeah. Not necessarily, they won't Not necessarily find out what's really happening. They'll just be told what's happening. Okay. So sort of it means that you possibly get a case whereby the researcher is getting the information that they want to fill their own view. Right. So it's confirming observations yes. or confirming conceptions versus uh, the other way around. And, and obviously you are about still Southwark Town Hall all yeah, this is up. So. Beautiful this building actually, lovely carving. Gorgeous. It was a public library. And the library's moved down there, actually. Yeah. Okay. So we're now on the wall. Is it the Walworth Road? We're, we're on the Walworth Road. Okay. And they actually, in that library, what's really interesting, they have uh, the remains of the collection of the first museum in in England. Oh wow. Okay. Interesting. So that's worth a visit at some point. Oh, it's definitely worth a visit. We can go and have a look at the picture if you want. It's it's just back. Yeah. It's just okay, back there. Back it's it's just. Um, before you go on to this one, I yeah. can we just finish off? Sure. So, so with the elder ants, so you have, have you taken this on board? Is there uh, something yeah. to go forward with in the future? Because obviously you travel is, is uh, not very possible at the oh, moment. Oh, we're actually doing it on Zoom. Are you doing it on Zoom? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's really interesting. So archaeology via Zoom? It, it's via Zoom. Or is it just, is it, it's is actually, just a discussion rather than... It's actually archaeology the in the sense of it's the, North, the French North American understanding of archaeology where it incorporates anthropology because there's the French school, French American school, and then there's the British school. The British school doesn't include anthropology. Okay. French and Americans the, do. And to the listeners who don't perhaps totally understand what you mean by anthropology what if it's you could about, say it in a nutshell it's such as how do people work how do we think how do we how do human beings organize their society okay how do we function function as not biologically no. but actually how does a society function okay. here it is it's this and this heritage center is very interesting because it has collections in their heritage which i've read about because i did a german style phd which meant that I had to do anthropology and art history and various, many more disciplines than you do here. Yes. So it's a lot longer. I had to look at collections of, collections being archival collections of museums that had existed since the 15th century onwards. So I was looking through the library yeah. and I found a collection talking about the Leven Museum, Leven Museum, and it was on vellum. And it was the first one, mm. and it's by the Lever family who became the Welcome. Oh, oh, the Welcome Institute. Yeah, it's sort of long. It was like several hundred years okay. ago, oh, and wow. they had a collection of they collected stuff from captains because the thing is that captains who were on ships during the 17th, 18th, and 19th century used to pick up sort of odd things. Yes, and then they bring them back and say, "Oh, look what this oddity oh. I have here!" And so this family ended up buying all of them and showing, sort of creating what we now know, we'd call a museum now. Yes, yeah. And they had a catalogue 
And the catalogue was illustrated on vellum. Okay. And some of the items on that, in that catalogue are yeah. here. Interesting. So this whole this discussion and talking about archaeology is, is, is almost as involved and interwoven as it is trying to get the story out of you, Alicia, because yeah. <laughs> it sort of weaves. It weaves, it sort of goes yes. everywhere. Yeah. So, it's, not, it's not linear, that's the problem. So from the likes of the boreal forests and, and now Zoom archaeology, as it were, <laughs> um, the, the other part of your interest is it in Namibia with oh, yeah, the, that's because the wall I'm, paintings? Yeah, I'll explain. I mean, I'm actually interested in citizen science. And I always have been because that's how I was trained as an archaeologist. Citizen science. science. Okay, that's See, a I new expression for me. I wasn't. Okay, well, it, uh, it's really saying you've got to empower people because it's about how much power as in to be able to do what you do as a researcher. So when I trained to be an archaeologist, I was taught that every skill I had, I learned, I had to be able to teach somebody else okay. how to do it. Right. So the whole point was uh, we, we have to empower others. You know, if I, you know, I was lucky to have had an education at a university, so yep. I had to be able to pass those skills on. Okay. Somebody who may not have had the opportunity by any you know, sheer happenstance, but they actually might be interested in what they were looking at. Yeah. So while I was studying rock paintings, uh, we all, the teams were composed by the guy who was a good friend of my grandfather. He would ensure that there was always one or two people who were the potential dropouts from some, some secondary school, really. For kids who weren't doing very well, who the teachers yeah. had always said, well, I don't think she's going anywhere because blah, blah, blah. But it might be. They just hadn't realised, you know, learning was interesting. Yes. Because learning school can be utterly boring. Well, it depends who's teaching you as well, exactly. I think. Exactly. <laughs> it can be. It depends an awful lot on the teacher. Yeah. So I'd always been doing this the whole way through doing working in the boreal forest. And when I went to, I did some field work in the States, um, Four Corners area. I went to Wisconsin. Where's the Four Corners area? Four then? Corners area is a North American term for the corner where Arizona meets New Mexico, Colorado and, uh, oh, brain, Colorado, Utah. Okay. That's called Four Corners. Okay, I didn't know that. There we go. We talk about the four corners of the world, but not the four corners. corners yeah, the and States. they are 90 degrees. Okay, gosh. So I went there to, court, to a place, uh, a teaching research center called Cortez, Colorado. And I went there and I was there, worked there as a supervisor, which was good fun, actually. So I learned about that area. Uh, and, and you were teaching? I was just a supervisor on a dig. So I was teaching people who were junior to me how to excavate. Okay. Um, and record an object when you found it and how to treat an object if it started turning up in the middle of your square. Right. So I got into it because it's part of my training. So when I came back to the UK, I thought I'd really like to do that because I felt that, you know, I've been really lucky to go and do a PhD and uh, I have a bunch of skills. And if you can't pass them on all by teaching. Yes. And I wasn't able to get a teaching position, so I thought if I did something like work for British Exploring, which I don't know if you know of, British Exploring Society. Okay. And uh, everyone who works is a volunteer, so you 
I looked at them and I thought, well, you know, I'd like a change uh, from the boreal forest because it would be, I mean, and what else, where else am I interested in? And I actually bumped into someone in a pub, actually, at an ex and after an, a talk which I went to called Explorer by Explorers Connect. And someone said, have you ever thought of um, going to the desert? And I was like, no, never thought of going to the desert. It's appealed, but I've never actually, the possibilities yeah. never come up. And he's like, well, why don't you think about it? So he then mentioned British Exploring. So I looked up the website, British Exploring website. I saw that they had two, they were looking for two people, one to do a sort of a leader. And the other one was a chief scientist. And I applied to do for a leader position and I went for the interview and they said, oh, actually, how about chief scientist? And I was like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so it was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Uh, and But I, I've always wanted to go there because I'd read a lot about it. It would be sort of a chance to go somewhere with a group of people who had background knowledge on the area, so it wouldn't be a sudden shock. Yes. And it, for me, it was like, wow, here's a you know, place I've read about, thought about, written about, but I've never actually been. Okay. So, so and um, I had to design citizen science programs. Oh, we're just about to pass uh, Just Eat, and it's disco attached. Oh, so like, oh yes. KFC deliveries. There we go. That's the uh, lovely um, cultural and um, rich tapestry of the Walworth Road. Uh, yeah, Walworth yeah. Road. So Old that's Fox. how I so. went to Namibia. Okay. And it's because I, it combined empowering people to think and then feel better about themselves. And it was great because they were, how many there? It was like 45 young people between the ages of 16 and 22. Okay. Some of them were feeling really glum about life. Yeah, and they yes. went, came okay. back six weeks later, saying it's great, and I'm like, I've achieved my result. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So in terms, so in terms of your your role and your focus was not so much on the archaeology itself, but actually engaging them young in every, people. Young in, people, and we looked at, we had, a, I worked with a chap who was a herpetologist, so we had a, a, a well, sort of a module on looking at the the wild and the environment and thinking about herpetology which is actually reptiles okay I was herpetology I was thinking of grasses and herbs but no. herpetology is reptiles reptiles there you go. so, so yeah, I think we... I need to go on your course <laughs> yes oh this is really interesting this is the East, East Street, Street Market, Market which is fantastic lots of things to great place to come and explore if you're in the in the area of, yeah of SE17 and Tuesdays is always fabric fabric and clothing on Tuesdays is it yeah What's today today's Wednesday Wednesday today's Wednesday Okay, I didn't realise that. And uh, they are different on different day of the weeks. I mean, on Saturday you get lots of vegetables and fruits. Yes, that's the day I've been on. Yeah. Are we going to walk down this way? So no, we we've can go walk Carrow Strait. So we had different modules on looking at the environment. We had one on soil science. It was done by one of the trainee leaders, they're called. They're people who want to learn how to do this. So she was really interested in soil samples and soil and how it's important to retaining moisture. So she devised a couple of experiments which everyone worked through and said, okay, okay we understand you know, the soil structure. It's not just this stuff that's on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did camera traps. We walked on a couple of paths where we knew the wild cats were. So we sort of 
we noticed that if the path was just left as is, they would sort of walk up and down. But if you take a rake and you actually put lines on the path, yeah. then the, they won't cross, the cats wouldn't cross it. Oh, wow, interesting. So, yeah. we sort of looked at animal behavior and things like that. So, because I worked with a couple of people who were with me and they were biologists and in different disciplines. So it was yeah. quite fun. Yeah. So that's a very different discipline to what you were doing in the boreal forest. Um, yeah. it, it was in a way, but it, it wasn't because it was still the question of transferring the skills. Okay. Yeah. So it was a continuation. Okay. And um, we also, uh, well, a continuation of it was that we walked up the Bramberg Mountain and climbed up it. Okay. I went to have a look for some pictograph sites, which, which was quite, we went up the northeast corner of the Bramberg, which is one of, it's Nineveh's biggest mountain. Is it? Okay. Yes. How, how high is it? I'm not sure actually, I should okay. know since I've been up it, which is really embarrassing. <laughs> how long did it take to walk up it? Uh, it took us three days to climb up part of the northeast okay. and we were, we knew it's one of the steepest sides, there's not much water, which is why people haven't actually been up there because of the lack of water, we had to carry it. Okay. Um, we went up there for about 10 days. Crikey. So what, you're all carrying? We carried our water, about seven of us went up. And, uh, and you carried enough water for 10 days? We had to, we got a water, much, we found a spring, fortunately. Okay. So but how we had, much water did you carry then, initially? We, initially we carried you? enough for a day. Okay. But we knew we had to find water. Yeah. And we found a, a spring, because you can see where there are trees growing up, so you know if there's a tree, is a spring. Right. So we found this incredible tree, it was huge. It was totally quite idyllic, sort of the, those photographs you always think of, you know, the 19th century tree, yeah. back of beyond, deepest, darkest Africa. <laughs> but the tree was incredible and there was a spring, so we boiled water and processed it and then put it in containers. And then we ended up being there and we went exploring. We found about nine pictograph sites, actually. Pictograph sites? Rock paintings, yeah. Okay. Fantastic, yes, uh, which you were able to record and... Uh, we, record, we photographed them mm -hmm. and recorded that they were there and fill out the prerequisite forms as required by the Trust for African Rock Art. Okay. And then when we got back to the UK, we submitted the lot. So this is the thing, is it, with, with archaeology, is, is, it, is it actually the, the excitement of going to these sites? Is it the actual... Is it the exploration or is it the thought of coming back and being able to write up what you found? I mean, what, what part of it is the most exciting for you? Um, that's a good question. I think it's the exploring side. But I actually enjoy the writing up. I know a lot of people don't. Okay. I, I quite like it. Yeah. Um, and really trying to understand, what can I find out? What does it tell me? But at the same time, I know that I may never know. Okay. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. But, um... Is it a case that sometimes you'll only know part of the story or you only know part of... Well, I know that uh, with... When I surveyed... Because I surveyed the Lake of the Woods for my PhD and it's the size of... I think it's probably about the size of Wales. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And I recorded it diligently. I followed all the rules. Okay. It sounds really small. The, la the word lake is very deceiving. Yeah, <laughs> in this instance, yeah. It's got 42,000 kilometres. Oh my word. And it's got 14,000 islands, so it's really quite it's big. massive. Um, 
And I found some sites. I recorded the ones I knew that they were there. I found those as well. I added in some new variables on the ground and I tested a couple of ideas that archaeologists in the area had su suggested. Oh, they're always east and west facing. And I was like, hmm, I don't think so. What are always east or facing? Rock, rock paintings. Oh, the rock paintings. And how did you go about the research? Was it by I canoe yourself, like no. your grandfather? Or was it no, by, it wasn't. By it was a plane? Uh, it was by. It took, a, it took a, a colleague and two colleagues and I three and a half months. We surveyed the whole lake. Crikey. By boat. By boat. Uh, we had an engine and we decided no more done. No rowing. No rowing. Well, the problem is some of it's like it's an inland sea. It's really quite large. If you look on the map of North America, uh, you have the Great Lakes and then you have the next big body of water is Lake of the Woods. So it took three and a half months every day. We were living go on the boat. Almost. We you'd go home to sleep. But where's home if you're in the middle of a lake? <laughs> it was a log cabin. Okay, so you could, so you would go out from the log cabin and, and yeah. explore each. And of course, if there are islands as well, you could. Uh, the islands we knew we could stop, but uh, we used sort of followed maritime law because that's what the law that exists on the lake. In European terms, we'd consider it a sea, actually. Okay. But there, there it's considered a lake, which right. is quite funny. And maritime law mean, what, what means if mean there's there? a storm, yeah. you have the right to land on someone's dock or someone's property. Okay. And luckily. Luckily. Did that happen at all? Yes, it did. And we just uh, worked with a good friend of mine, Mindy. And so we were on these islands. They're called the Barrier Islands in in the, the area. and. We were on the south side and the, we saw Fort Lightning and we thought we, we're in a we're Let's in a run for it. <laughs> we either we have no choice. We either run for it to where is the question. Yeah, yeah. Or because we knew we had to get off the lake, so we just saw a dock and said, "Okay." We just, as she said, we rocked up. Yeah. <laughs> we tied the boat on and we took everything out. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think we loaded on life jackets ran up the dock and we thought well they, they had a long eve to the house it was a 1960s house so it had these very a-frame and so it had yeah. huge eaves so we thought well we'll just stand under the eaves then we're at least out of the rain and we didn't know there was anyone was there and they're like hi visitors and we're like uh hi <laughs> not really <laughs> not really we're only here fugitives to... <laughs> exactly. from a storm and we're like the storm. storm's coming and they're like really and then there's this crack oh, and they're like yeah why didn't you just come in and we're like we were quite happy with standing outside underneath the eaves because they're like they're like no no come in and they gave us coffee it was really kind of them very nice very so nice. where are we going from here are we, we, could, we, we are if you from... want to see the park i yes. was thinking we'd carry on okay so Alicia, with all the different organisations that you, you're involved with here in the UK, but also abroad, I suppose, you're a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Yep. And um, also the Explorers Club. Yep. UK. And how have those organisations influenced what you've done in your professional life? Have they had an influence? I mean, have they provided funding or have you applied and, and through them done something very very interesting and exciting or is it the case that you do things that are very interesting and exciting and then they, they turn up afterwards they 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 applaud you or they <laughs> they um it, it's then it's then a conduit through which you can then tell people what you've uh, done and others can then benefit from it and perhaps continue what you weren't able to do or, i mean how that's a good question the i the explorers club i joined 
because uh, the work I did when I was in Canada, a lot of my colleagues didn't like it because my supervisor had some stature in the field, so he encouraged me to challenge everything about archaeology. Okay. Um, the archaeologists like in Canada weren't happy because they're like, why did Bruce let you do that? And I'm like, well, he's the boss. He's the supervisor. You just let me do it. Okay, finished. And there's nothing I can do about it. If your supervisor says, challenge X, you're like, all right then. So uh, the Explorers Club for me was a means of saying, you know, I achieved the PhD. I applied and I actually, this, it, the project actually had a consequence for the field. So for that, that's why I joined initially, because it was some means of just confirmation. Okay. Uh, and the biologists were saying, yeah, you actually, well, you, you've demonstrated that it doesn't matter. The, the size of the Lake of the Woods is big, but it says that when you need to think at a bigger scale in terms of data, if you're going to look at something that, such as, why can't I see any patterns in the images? Sort of okay. patterns. Why, why do I not see, for example, the same shape in specific geographical areas or combinations of shapes? Because that's why I had been using, because I had been in my, in the work I did in Lake of the Woods, I was using experimental uh, intelligent agents. I'm trying not to be technical now. Oh my goodness. Is that a Google camera? I'm wondering about that. Are we going across there? So we go across here, because then we go through into the, and then it's a park and it's very quiet. Oh yeah, it is. It's like some film set, I think. Anyway, so and I had been, I had wanted originally in that piece of work to find out whether combinations of images occurring, because the archaeologists in the Canadian Shield, if you looked at the literature, had argued, oh, there should be combinations. For example, several bison occur together, or bison occur with stick figures or you get three stick figures together, or you get mm -hmm. two stick figures. So I was just testing that. And my work had demonstrated there were no combinations. Okay. Despite the fact that I had an area the size of Wales, if you go down, we walk down here, then we see there's a tunnel. I don't know what this is at all, actually. I think it's some film set. We're just about to walk into a film set. <laughs> they're, they're blowing smoke across like the grass. Smoke, people with shields. Anyway, we're anyway. about to, we'll keep going anyway. <laughs> so that's, okay, so that's, 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 that was the Explorers That was the Explorers, and so the Explorers Club sort of said, yes, you know, if you chat, that was a sort of a confirmation, because the archaeologists weren't happy, my supervisor was happy. So it was a, it's an argument in the field. The, so the Explorers Club said, yeah, we like the fact that you were trying to push boundaries. Okay. And isn't that what it's about anyway? Well, that's, I, mean, it's also, I thought so, Aren't yes. you supposed to question and, and challenge what, what you see before you and, and, and see whether what other people have said before you, rather than just accept it? Yeah, just well, that's what I thought. Check, but... Yeah, uh, okay. that's what I thought. I thought you were supposed to set up a premise, you read everything you can, learn as much as you can from earlier literature, all your experiences, draw on the training you had as an undergraduate, and then go out and see what you can find. Test all the assumptions. Yeah. Well, I did, and I applied intelligent agents, which were pattern matching. So I was looking at combinations of images. Should we go around there? Yeah. And couldn't, 
weren't any patterns. It was negative evidence. And right. I remember working with the computer scientists because I went to I did it at Southampton in, in computing science, and I remember them saying, "You've got negative evidence here. How are your colleagues going to handle it?" Well, I knew my supervisor would be fine. Yes, but he had said, "Let's hope it's positive." And I remember going back and saying, "Okay." And because I did the analysis in, in Southampton, so I got on the plane, got back, had it all on the CDs, memory, every form, way, every way, shape, and form you can possibly imagine to keep it. Went back to Montreal and said, "Afraid it's negative." And he was like, "Oh, well, our colleagues won't be happy, will they?" No, they were very unhappy because I hadn't confirmed. I was. I discovered after my PhD, I should have confirmed biases that were all statements. I see, okay. So what did that mean for your PhD? Oh, PhD was fine. I got it. But um, it meant it was very difficult to get any, any work or any job afterwards. Oh my goodness, okay. Because um, I wasn't confirming. Okay. So it was more or less wasn't but you weren't confirming, but were you giving a, another opinion as a result? So they didn't want another opinion. But did you give it anyway? Yeah, I did. You well, did it was given it. who he was. I had no, yeah. yeah. And it was given it was a PhD. Yeah, I gave it. Of course. And said, okay, here's my paper. And I remember giving the paper at the annual archaeology meetings in, we go down south. Ace of Spades. This looks like some kind of... Yeah, the graffiti there is always really interesting. Yeah. Looks so, like Elvis is sitting on top. It does actually, yes. <laughs> so the consequences were pretty dire because the archaeologists were in Canada were pretty cross. Yeah. Because they're like, you should have confirmed this. We have all these statements about where rock paintings occur and what they are and what they do, and you've said negative. And I was like, well, it wasn't me. It was the engine. But if they're negative, well, then we need to think about how we are thinking about the space. So now I'm starting to risk trying not to get in anything too technical. But it's about how we think. Yeah. That's what it told us more about how we as archaeologists think, organize data, think about data, think about the questions, sure. the preconceptions in which we're collecting. And it's, is it within the industry also, it's, it must be, maybe I'm being controversial saying this, but, but um, is it easy to be influenced by other archaeologists around you to, to ensure that you're within the fold? Of, of thinking, as it were, rather than to think outside of it because that then causes too many ripples. Yes, yeah. yeah. And okay. I didn't fit in the box. Okay. So with the Royal Geographical Society, Society, I could continue not to think out of the box. So that That's, has allowed that you is, to yeah. spread your wings and, yeah. and, and yeah. be a bit more, have the freedom. And the freedom and the fact that it's okay. They're like, think holistically which is great. So I realized once I finished, I had to find, I wasn't going to be welcome in the fold because I was actually saying, it's equivalent of the elephant has no clothes on. What is the elephant in the room? It's that, that there's a problem with, I wasn't willing to do groupthink. Okay, yeah. Because the thesis had actually challenged groupthink, that was the problem. Okay. So I, that's why I went to the Explorers Club which is because they were like, yes, we like to do this sort of thing. Hang on. The Explorers Club accepted the fact that I challenged 
Oh, I thought it was the other way. Yeah, I thought no, you were no. suggesting it was the other way around. No, no, so. no. They like the challenging. They like the pushing of the frontiers. That's also when I came back here, that's why I went to the to the RGS, thought, this is interesting, I like them. And then the couple of the people who are fellows said, oh, you know, you should really become a fellow. Because you've worked, because I worked with them in Namibia. So they said, you actually know, you've worked with us, we've seen you on the ground, you know what you're doing, you know how to do citizen science, you know how to, you know how to manage ethics and protocols and research and all the rest of it. We'll nominate you. So I was like, great. Because yes. you're, you know, they're thinking holistically. Yes. And it's okay to challenge. And it's a, it's, it's a good idea to sort of look at the parameters of why you're doing things. Right. And think about how those parameters are actually influencing you. Yeah. In how you're going to ask that question or yeah. those questions or even sort of say, well, why are we looking at the landscape in this way? Or okay. why should I talk to a botanist, for example? Well, it might be a good idea because there's some plants there which actually, going back to the plants in the park, for yes. example, those wild plants, yeah. those wild plants are important. Everything should be a multidisciplinary approach, exactly. which, is what, yes. which is what I was involved yes. with. So yeah, and I yeah. totally get that. Yeah. And, and the more you involve, brings new eyes to, to the site, as it were, doesn't yeah. it? And yes. Okay, sometimes you might go down the wrong path or... or or not, but you've, it's important to involve as many yeah. people as you can think yeah. of, with that professional yeah. capability or capacity to, yeah. to bring something to what you're, yeah. what you're studying. So while I might sound sort of vague in where I'm getting where I was, but it wasn't actually, it was a sort of, it was equivalent to saying, I've got to find the group of people who actually think the same way I do. Yes. Isn't that with everything in life though? Yes. <laughs> And have you found them? Yes, they're great. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're that's very <laughs> Now, coming on from that then, while I was Googling you, Alicia, sorry, I have to admit I did Google, <laughs> I did Google ah. to see what came up. Um, and you, you are part of a group called Women Who Know History. Oh, that's interesting. That's because I'm also an ethno-historian. Okay. And I explain to the listeners what, what it is. It's in two words. In two words. <laughs> ah, don't know. <laughs> yeah, of course I do. Um, it's sort of history using oral information. So it's not necessarily using the written record. So we use the written record, but I also listen a lot okay. to people who have a tradition of having an oral memory. Okay. So what usually happens? Tales and everything. Yeah, and tales folklore and folklore and, and yeah. myths. So what happens usually is someone will say, oh, well, tell me about something. According to oral history, this, and I'll say, oh, interesting. I'll listen to it, then I'll write it down. And then the task of an ethno-historian is to really find the evidence, such as photographs, or maybe other written sources, okay. to try and work out how much of that is you know, memory invention, yeah, and how much is fact. So corroborated by a, a, a fact. Because the thing is, it's well known that the humans embroider and they don't always remember things. Mm -hmm. A story is always told it's slightly differently. Well, everybody will tell it slightly differently. Everyone will they... tell it, exactly. And everyone will sort of think of things and remember things slightly differently. Yes. But there will be elements that will be the same. Yes. So the question is to find the evidence that, that works out which bits are the same, okay. which bits correlate. I worked with a group in Constance Lake, which is Hearst, which is um, a northern mining town in Canada. This is a good example to understand how a historian works. This, this group had been approached by 
a Chinese firm to sell the phosphate that was in their land. Now, these people had always lived there. They, according to their oral memory, they had always lived there. Yes. They hadn't lived anywhere else. They'd moved maybe once, but they couldn't remember why. Right. Um, but they knew the land was theirs, but they didn't have any paperwork. Yes. But the thing was, if you have a contract with a, a corporate entity, it means you actually have to know where you live. But if you're not accustomed to the idea that you live in a house with a, a house has got a piece of paper attached to it, or a flat which has got a document attached to it, and has always had a document attached to it, the idea of you suddenly having to say, um, well, we've always lived here. Yeah, it's like, prove it. Prove How do you it. Prove it. How do you prove it? Because it's a case you've got to yeah. prove it in court. Yeah. If your society doesn't function that way, what do you do? Well, it usually means you get someone like me who says, okay, uh, so I listened and they said, well, we've always been here. And then they showed me on the map where, you know, sort of the general area. And they said, oh, you've lived at Mama Matwa. And I was like, oh, okay. There was a team of archaeologists and linguistics people who do linguistics and I so the archaeologists like we have to find Mama Matwa but we don't know where it is and this is an area the size of northern Canada so you're looking at sort of James Bay and you've got the Albany River which goes up from the Great Lakes going up so it's like well where where is this Mama Matwa it means branching in the river okay and the place is full of rivers wow. and there's lots of branches <laughs> so what do I do what do I have? Well, I have the fur trade post records. I don't know if fur trade post is by mean the Hudson Bay Company, which was founded in 1670. It was actually founded here in London mm -hmm. in a coffee house, which eventually became the stock exchange. Aha, okay. So, so yes. it's all connected. And the fur trade books really are accounting books. So we're actually looking at the notebooks of the traders because the fur trade post was a, it's a bit like a shed. And there'd be two men in there, or one man, and he would be responsible for buying the furs off the local indigenous community who would come in and say, I bought mink, or all the different furs, and then yes. they would go be packed up on a yearly basis and then taken eventually down to Montreal and then shipped to the fur markets in Antwerp. Mm -hmm. So I looked at these records, which are now in Winnipeg, because they moved from London a fair while ago. Okay. I thought, okay, I know which rivers go up to James Bay and between Sault Ste. Marie, which is, if you look at the Great Lakes, it's the middle one, the north, and it goes straight up. Right. So I knew, I said, okay, I've got there, all the way up to James Bay to try and find, so they must be somewhere on this route. Yeah. And I discovered that these posts have been opened and closed because it's called a post. It's actually a little shed. Yes. It's probably the size of, oh, that bus is bigger. Okay, so that double-decker bus. Double-decker bus okay. is bigger than the, than the, than the post. So I, I realised these posts were opening and closing, I mean, sometimes in 20, 15-year periods. And so it, I knew that the indigenous group had called Constance Lake Cree. They spoke Cree and they didn't speak English. Okay. They spoke some French, and the Cree. elder Cree because of it's of the river, is it? Lake? No, no. They just spoke Cree. It's a Gonquin language which they speak in that part of the world. Okay. So I don't speak Cree, but 
the elders spoke Cree, so I was just told, well, we, we moved for a reason. And so I knew, okay, this was in 2008. They're everybody talking about their grandparents or their great-grandparents. So we're talking possibly sort of 1905, 1910, 19, before yeah. 1920. And probably, well, when was the treaty signed? It was sort of 1904 for that, that particular treaty. Right. So I thought, well, I should get some data. So I looked through the records. I spent about three months going through microfiche, trying to find what was said. Most of the time it says, tells you about the weather, the temperature, and who comes to visit. But then I started to see in a couple of posts, one in particular, stories of people dying from what looked like cholera to me. So I was like, hmm, I think I'm on something because it's suddenly talking about large numbers of people dying. Yeah. And the community had spoken about, we don't know why we moved. Ah, yes. And that period, the only way to deal with cholera was to move. Away from the water source. Away from the water source. Yeah. So I suddenly started to realise, okay, I think I might have some. Then I realised, okay, I can write this, but it actually doesn't make an impression, as big impression. If Maybe if I had some photographs, it would help. So I started thinking, well, who in Canada would hold these collections now? So I thought, well, I'll just try the McCord Museum. And I hit lucky. It was lucky. I could have tried another one first. And yeah. I found a collection of photographs by someone. And he photographed all the... The burial ground. My goodness. Wow. And so, so you could prove it. So I could prove it. Wow. So I said, this is where you used to live. And so they said, okay, we now know where our grandparents and our great grandparents and everybody was buried. So they told the Chinese who they'd been willing to, because what they were going to do was in an area the size of 42 kilometers squared, they're going to take all the topsoil off and strip out all the phosphate, sell the phosphate underneath and then put the topsoil back on My again. My goodness. So you doing the research you did, has that stopped that stopped happening? It. yeah. Well done, Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> that is, a, that that is, is one very, very good, good example, example of, of yeah. how important archaeology is, or ethno-history. Ethno-history ethno is, yes. It can do all sorts of things. So I essentially combined the, what people talked about. Yes. And said, yeah, you know, there are elements. You just have to find the bits. So it involves a lot of listening. Yes. And I've had to develop my oral memory because people don't really like sort of to turn up, hi, here's my notebook of me. Yeah, no, <laughs> no exactly. Not really. No. Well, actually, it kind of is a, is a contradiction in terms, oral memory, and then you're writing it down. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. yeah. And also there's a traditional way of storytelling. People will talk in, in, the, in a circle. So you're started at something, and then it seems as if you're getting the person who's actually getting away from the subject, and they're going in a direction, and they go around, and then they come back yeah. to, to the original point. If you're the listener, and you're thinking, but you haven't really told me what I want to know. <laughs> and then they'll go around again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'll come back again, and you're like, okay, I learned a bit more. And then they'll go around again. Right. And you're like, okay, now, now we get it. Now I've got it. Now I've got it. Yes. Bite-sized chunks of information on each each, each story cycle, or each cycle. cycle. Yeah, and yeah, so that's the sort of task. And you also learn how to. You spend a lot of time talking to someone, and the northern communities they like pulling your leg or they're telling a tall tale and seeing whether you can tell. Is this a tall tale? 
Okay, Let's see whether you will laugh at the end of it yeah, or whether yeah. you'll, you'll take it seriously. seriously. Yeah. Okay. So how does this all, talking of tales and cycles, coming back to the beginning of, of our cycle, um, women who know history? It comes back to the fact that I was interested in the role of women in history and asking what did they do and so I became interested in all these women who had done all these interesting things yes but weren't seemed to be making it into the print and I was just like why it's just a side hobby okay I just joined it because I because I thought this is actually very interesting yes and it's a way of connecting uh, with other women connect with other women who actually do it yeah yeah well I just find it interesting yes and I found that it's meant that you get a different view of what's happening yes yeah yeah so, for example, the archaeologists often in the 19th century, they, they would go with their wives out. So you often hear about them, but you don't... You never heard their side, side of the story. Of the story no. No, no. So their side of the story is interesting in what sort of measures that they had to go to in order to get an education. Yeah. And the network Women Who Know History is really women who are researchers who want to talk about history. Yes, yeah. And say, look, yes, I have a different point of view. And all I, you know... Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, through that way, I've actually been asked to review an article, which was quite interesting, by uh, someone who I don't, obviously, I don't know who they are because the name is taken off. Yes. Uh, all about Harriet Boyd, who's um, American woman. And there are lots of myths about her because it's also interesting. There are myths, people who had lots of quote unquote what they call first, as in first woman to excavate on her own or something like that. Yes. And. There's a lot of work now that's being done to sort of see, well, why are these women being given these labels? And who are the other women who've been forgotten in time? Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. lots of them. Yes, yes. Fantastic. I like that. It's a good thing to be a part of as well. Yeah. Um, now, another organisation that you're <laughs> I wonder, I'm surprised you even have time to walk and talk with me, Alicia. You see, you're, you're doing so many things, but, so, but to carry on. Um, so you're also involved with the Scientific Exploration Society. Oh right? yeah, that's it. Yeah. And through that organisation, you've co-founded with another colleague. Yeah. Um, a, a a magazine online yeah, called so Exploration Reveal. Yes. And how did that? How, how, how that, does that all come about? That's come about. Um, uh, Bryony is my colleague. She's Bryony Turner. She's actually a uh, climate specialist. Mm -hmm. I met her through an event that the RGS have called the Explore, which is a fieldwork and adventure expedition travel weekend. And people from all sorts of different disciplines come. Basic interest is that everyone likes going on expeditions and doing fieldwork. Yes. And so it's a means of meeting lots of holistic thinking people who, you know, are you interested in getting someone who can track you as you go around the world? Oh, here's the person for you. That's okay. the sort of, it's a very good event. So I met her there because she was on the stand for the Scientific Exploration Society. And we were talking about how, A, we would never meet ever, probably, mm -hmm. because she's in climate. I don't do anything to do with the climate and she would never meet an archaeologist. But we realised what was pulling the, the group together was that we were talking about all the things that went wrong when yes. you went on field work yeah. and the things that the bad bugs you caught and the, the unwelcome visitor that came home. In your backpack or your inside back your stomach. Exactly. <laughs> or, or 
the times that you went on made dreadful errors and you you, know, you went on expedition and you came back with nothing because it was an absolute disaster. Okay. But do we ever talk about that? As her point was that researchers, no, never. Okay. We never talk about it. Yeah. We only talk about what's deemed positive. Yes. We only talk about what's deemed acceptable. But actually, there's an awful lot of stuff that we actually learn from. Yeah. We agreed about this. And so then we went on our merry way and we just kept bumping into each other at talks at different events and always having the same conversation. Yeah. So in the end, we sort of, oh, it'd be great if we had in a magazine. And we'd always think, oh, we'd have this section and this category and that category. Yes. You know, someone who's got, for example, ethical sort of quandaries. Oh, I really like this thing, but can I take it home? No. Those sorts of discussions. We realised that, you know, we had, this was the same conversation. And this was 2016 when we actually met. In late 2019, she said, that's it, we've got to do something. So it's like, you know, we're really busy. And she's like, I know, worse people to ask. <laughs> what happened was, she's a trustee of Scientific Exploration Society, which is uh, an organisation founded by John Blatter Snell, who also founded Raleigh International. Okay, yep. So it's all about empowering people. Yes. Um, and they've done a lot with, with young people yeah. going on various exploration missions all around the world. Yeah, they, they yes. have. So uh, she went to have a chat with them and they said they would back us if we wanted to do it. So we decided we would do it. Then we just got really busy and then lockdown came. And then I walked up to her and I said, you know, this is an opportune time. What are we doing other than work? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really sick of Zoom, frankly. There's only so many Zoom talks I can attend. Yes. <laughs> yes, this is an opportune time. I'm, I'm just about to have foot surgery. She says, so, so why don't we do it while I'm recovering from foot surgery at home? So this is what we did during lockdown and her recovery from her foot surgery. We just said, OK, I will sit on Zoom for eight hours and chat and sort of. We did it all. And you launched it in June. In June, okay. And the magazine is very much to encourage everyone who's been on explorations, whatever that exploration may be, yeah. to talk about the things that went wrong, things that went right, and share information and share sort of, how, share stories and this is sort of how this, to yeah how to do it. The science of sort of explore is sort of like the process of exploration and sort of how to put it together. And, yes, and things that. We want to hear about the things that go wrong, the things that you, they, people never talk about in their academic articles, because yeah. we've actually just got the ISSN number, so now we're an academic journal and a magazine right. at the same okay. time. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. So we're like, yes! <laughs> but what does that mean for, um, for you guys? I mean, have you got people on board to help you with the editing, or are you looking for people to help? We're looking this for... This is a pitch here. <laughs> this is an opportunity, Alicia. Yes, it is an opportunity. We do need people who are up for you know, editing. Obviously, it's all volunteer at the moment because we're brand new, but because yeah. we've, we've got our platform paid for for the next 18 months. Okay. So we're exploring various models of how to make it pay. Yeah. And ideally, Brownie says we'd really like to pay authors, but we know at the moment we can't. Mm -hmm. But so let's say you have 400 words and you want to talk about something, you can. Yes. Because some, I mean, for example, there are some articles, some academic, well, our academic articles are much shorter, only 1,500 words, not your usual 9,000. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you might have something small, but you can't place it because, well, an academic article is 9,000. Yeah. And we did it because we thought there's a niche. Now, we did a competitor analysis and discovered there wasn't one. Right. So it's like, why? Yeah. So why not? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, you so attract all kinds of people from people who might just say, oh, look here, I learned this. This is a great tip for, for people going on an exploration to the desert or something. Exactly. And, and they can write three, four hundred words of, or even less. Yeah, or even less. We always have a kit review. Mm -hmm. So you could, anyone can submit a review of a piece of kit as long as they're not sponsored. Mm -hmm. We don't want sponsored because then it, sure. you can't, it's not. Okay, so if people want to get in touch with you on that, it's uh, there's a website. There's a website called Exploration Revealed. Okay, so I put it in the show notes for anybody who might be interested. Welcome in to submit. We're stuff. we're just getting. We just had a first submission for the next issue, so it's quite okay. It's like woo, Very. exciting. Yes. Um, Does it come out every month, or is it sort of as articles come in, or how are you? Um, how are you doing we have it? three issues a year. Okay because we thought about four, but then we realized we would actually be overwhelmed and we can't actually do what we yes. normally do. Yeah. So we said three. Be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and be ourselves. able to achieve. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so three issues a year. You can talk about one of the categories, you know, the, the unwelcome visitor. An article we thought about is like polar thigh, which is really gruesome, which women generally get when they go down to Antarctica. Right. And it's horrible, it's like frostbite. Okay. In the in the thigh area. Right. And it's a sort of it takes a long time to recover from. Does it? Yeah. Oh. Pretty grim. Is it what is it just like basically everything freezes up? Yeah. And is it very painful? Very painful. Very painful while it's defrosting, or uh, painful while it's frozen up, or both. Uh, both. I think okay. from the sounds of it, it sounds yeah. pretty grim. I I wow. spoke to someone who had experienced it, and it just was like, oh, okay, I don't know, really. Does that really region really appeal to me now? <laughs> Sort of gave me sort Holy of like thought. Uh, second thoughts. Uh, yes, horrible. Okay. Horrible. Um, and are there are there ways to get round? I suppose that's a yeah. Is there, there, are. A tip? Yes. there are there are ways. Of but it's being aware, isn't it? It's being aware. Time. And so we talk about oh, what did we had? We had an article on this last issue, the first one, on uh, Kakar, which is an island in the Bismarck Sea off the coast of Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. which is known for cannibalism. Mm -hmm. and coconuts and they export coconuts and cocoa. Everything to do with sea. <laughs> okay. So, I should won't... we go down around the corner because yes. it's going to end? Um, so we just go around the block. Sure. Uh, well, weren't we supposed to be looking at some butterfly? Yeah, right? but I think we, we couldn't go by oh, the butterfly because of the because they're filming. Film. They're probably filming it. Okay. Probably. And so what, what else? Oh, we had one. We had a story of a chap who he got was in a boat on the edges of a hurricane off the coast of the southern US and, and talks about that experience. Okay. And going to Fort, Fort Lauderdale from the point of view of a boat. Right. Okay, so you very much, you're, you'll encompass all sorts of stories and... All sorts of stories. ...tales and exploration missions. If you haven't conquered Mount Everest, it doesn't matter. We're not far. Right, yeah. So you don't have to go Mount Everest, far from it, I mean... Yeah. Uh, we always have interview with a young explorer. Yes. Someone so, because I noticed in again while I was just having a quick look that uh, a young young London boy, I think, seven-year-old, has just won the honorary award yeah. for, the, for for his exploration, scientific explorations of, of uh, around his garden. I'm talking about snails and everything. I think it's fantastic. He's doing little YouTube oh, that's videos. Oh, they yes. yes. I've forgotten his name. I so. can't remember. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah. He's got a Twitter account, actually. Has he? Yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. So, uh, yes, trying to trying to engage with his generation, yes, which, which is very important. Get we, people um, excited about science in, in, in yeah. all um, yeah. senses of the word. And, nature 
And we had a, an article from uh, Rowan, and she's nine. And because we're trying to work out how to deal with the sort of ethical issues of, of having someone who is under the age of, you know, 16, because all the laws start changing. Yes. Actually, giving them the opportunity of speaking to established explorers. Right. So Rowan, she's nine. She spoke to Steve Blackshaw. Okay. And um, another chap whose name I can't. And she asked them all about dealing with animals and. She yeah. wants to sort of be some somebody who deals with animals. Okay. So I think something marine. So it's quite exciting, actually. Yeah. Well, congratulations on getting that off the ground. Thank you. Um, good luck with your. Your this will be your first edition coming out. Then, uh, or is it your the first one's come out. We've got a second one coming. Second out. one coming. When yeah. does the second one come out? Then uh, is it probably in, in March. The new year? In the new year. March. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Because we're so, busy talking to the academics at the moment, saying, okay. You've got to be in by this date because we need to send you out to peer review again. Okay. So it's like look, with the magazine articles have one cycle and the academic articles have another cycle. Right. Okay. Well, we're back on the main road again. I know. Uh... Oh, we'll be fine. Let's go. We'll, we'll just go down a side road. Um, so talking about articles and writing and magazines, you, you write a lot, obviously. Yeah. Both in terms of serious stuff <laughs> um, but what I loved is that I found a couple of articles that you'd written one about avocados and another one about chocolate oh I like chocolate and I like yes. avocados <laughs> um, but that's food archaeology I mean what a great subject I mean that's the kind of archaeology I would like to get involved with if, if I did do archaeology and you wrote those four, I've forgotten the name of the magazine now. It's something called Monk Magazine. What was it called? Monk Magazine. A Monk Magazine. magazine. It yes. was a science magazine. And it's called something to do with brains. What was it called? Um, training, not training the brains. Got a very good handle, but like I can't. Modernising the brain. Or, 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 yeah. Anyway, Monk Magazine. Yeah, and um, I liked it. It was the idea that trying to get... A recipe was always combined with it. It's the idea of trying to get people to realise there is actually quite a lot of information behind the stuff that we eat. Yes. The editor liked it, the column, but we were not sure whether the general public liked it so much. Okay. So I now have one on olives I'm trying, I have to do something with. So with olives? On oh, olives. Okay. I find it fascinating when you look at something like the chocolate bar. But you learnt about the chocolate, the cacao and, and the cocoa butter and everything, but just the origins of where some of these, mm. uh, where the plants originated. and. Mm where you think they are not necessarily where they are now as well. Exactly, and I find that really interesting, especially since earlier on I was telling you all about where you could get these incredibly interesting avocados. Yes. And thinking about why is it you get avocados in those areas? Well, it's all kind of goes back to Pangaea, which is sort of a bizarre concept that we have an avocado in various parts of the globe, all back to the fact when all the continents were connected together. Yeah, and that's what the Pangaea is. Yeah. yeah. And also you talked about the various sort of um, dinosauric animals that ate the avocado, including yeah. one that had four pairs of tusks as yes, well. Yes, sounds gruesome, <laughs> doesn't it? does sound very gruesome. So if you're interested in learning more about avocados and why they're still here, I will put a link to that article that, uh, that Alicia wrote, because it is fascinating. But I, I don't know whether you can say knowledge is cool, but sometimes I think it is. Yes. It's just like, oh, that's, that's like to think that the reason that they've got their shape is because a bunch of megafauna. Yes. It's like, 
huge dinosaurs yeah. went and ate them is actually pretty sort of astounding. Ate we... them and then made sure that, that, that they were spread around <laughs> the whole landscape so there was always a continuation of the avocado tree. <laughs> yes. Producing the avocados and that's probably why again we've got such a prolific amount of avocados in South America, not here obviously, but um, have you ever grown an avocado tree? No, we have one in Brazil in one of the houses we lived in. Um, the house was on a split level and the garage was underneath, so you, you can lean out the kitchen window and pick uh -huh. avocados off a tree. Okay. I had an avocado tree. And where are they ripe? Because in Spain they pick them, they're not ripe, you have to take them indoors and then they ripen. They were ripe. They were ripe. Wow. They were ripe. Okay. And they were those ones that you get in the Colombian store. They don't, they don't have a gritty exterior. Mm -hmm. This exterior is very smooth and they're a lot more rounded rather than pear-shaped. Okay. It's very good and made into ice cream. Avocado yes, ice cream. yeah, I, no, I've never had that. I can understand it might sound bizarre, but it's actually quite nice. Yeah, well, it tastes such, so different to the avocados you get in this country, that's for sure. Yeah, the avocados at in the this supermarkets country are kind of a waste of time, aren't they? Yeah, they are, which is a real shame. <laughs> Apparently, they still give you some benefit, but um, but they just don't taste the way they taste. No. In Australia, the avocados were incredible as well. Well, Alicia, I'm starting to get polar hand, actually, from walking around. <laughs> Do you want to come well, up? polar hands. So, so maybe we should start to wind this up. And I wondered, um, just to sort of, out of all the areas and places in the world that you've visited with your research and through holiday, I suppose, as well, have your favourite place that you've uh, been to and, and, and also one that you found very challenging to visit or, or while you've been exploring? Um, and one that you would want to live in? Um, that's a good question. Well, I want Just to... three in one, really. Oh, well, um... Oh, we're coming back uh, to the main road. Okay. That's fine. I'll speak. Well, I did live in Montreal and I wanted to live there. Right. And you speak fluent French as I well, so... I, I learned French there, actually. I, I had a smattering of it here. But then it had to be improved because everyone spoke French and not English. Okay. Where? I don't know. That's a horrible question. So many places to go. Yeah, there are. <laughs> I know. I find it. I find it always as the place that I'm in that I want to be until I go somewhere else, and then I think maybe that's where I want to be. But I think somewhere where it's it, it's interesting, in the sense there's something challenging. Challenging in terms of the environment, or. or... or or for you personally, is it? Do you do you prefer the warmth to the cold, or do you prefer? Uh, I don't like the super heat, super, super humid. I don't like <laughs> when it humidity. Okay. Heat that's humid. I can deal with it for a while. Yeah. But uh, for as in a, a few days, maybe yeah. a week yes. or two, but I don't like it after that. Perhaps I should change the question. Say, where where have you been in the world that has challenged you the most? That's a tough one. I don't know. Oh, have you been, have you ever, do you find you adapt very easily to your environment? I adapt very easily. So I was just trying to think where places I wouldn't, I'd go most places actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just adapt. I mean, I remember I went to, to China for three weeks, three, four weeks, almost four weeks. And it was, initially it was just, oh my goodness, I can't understand this. This is weird because I, and it was a case of, 
I'm suddenly stuck in an environment where I can't speak the language. And it, for me, it was unusual because I can speak a fair number. And so I was just like, oh, I've got to learn it. That was my first reaction. <laughs> which is very hard, which of course you couldn't. Which I couldn't, but I could pick up the characters. Yes. So, and I, I found that that was tough. Yeah. And it was suddenly a case of having to revert to the fact that I had no idea how to say anything. Yeah. And yes. and you there's there's no uh, baseline to no. work from is there? Yeah. No. And well, um, certainly not with the languages that you know anyway. No. <laughs> there was no baseline. And so it was a case of okay, well I'm just going to have to start from scratch the way I did when I was uh, learning Brazilian the first time round is what's this called? And I was like, I don't even know what this called is. And, and it, I remember thinking the climate was very similar. The, the scenery was different. It was every sort of expectation that I had was different. But I would go back again. You would go back, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. People were incredibly kind. Yeah. And were you in, where were you in? I was in Beijing. Okay. And I knew I stood out and people would come up and sort of touch you to yeah. see whether you're real. Yes. And that was a bizarre experience. Yeah, yeah yes. I had that actually in, in Vietnam, in the north of Vietnam, the same kind of thing where red hair and freckles and my friend had dark hair and was like beautifully tanned. Just, they kept looking at us thinking, they can't understand why we look so different, <laughs> you know, but we spoke the same language. But anyway. <laughs> But the food was amazing. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't pronounce any of it, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, that's good. You, in fact, did you actually know what you were eating? Some of the time. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Go back again. Yeah. Been there a couple of times. And um, it's changing massively. There is that huge kind of um, difference between the city the urban landscape now oh, and, and the rural yeah. landscape. Right. So I mean, the rural... So the, rural, the urban is now so urban and modern, which it wasn't the first time I went there. The countryside struck me as very like Portugal in the, in the 80s, before it really became part of the EU. Yeah. And it was really... It looked like the same sort of half-done half things, sort of bits, lumps of concrete in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. And it was... It was it was clearly a case of a place which was in transition. Yes, yeah. Well, so, yeah. oh gosh. So, yeah, it's a tough question. It I is, and yeah, but there are no answers. So basically, you're, are you're, no you're, you, are a, you are a woman of the world. You will be where you will be. Yeah, that's uh, for probably as, good. For as, long as, for as long as that may be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a good answer. And in terms of London, we're walking, are we back in Burgess Park? Yeah, here? we are back We've in We've done an amazing Park. route around, actually. And this looks like a wildlife yeah, a it's pond. It's wildlife a wildlife pond. The bridge going across. Um, in London itself, then, where do you go to relax and just away from archaeology, writing, and everything else? That oh, I usually sort of go wandering. I like exploring new bits I've not seen before. Okay, where's the latest place? That the you've latest been to? place uh, I've been exploring up in Hackney, Shoreditch, and all those places. Oh yeah, and uh, just because. Well, they were super trendy. I wasn't really interested, and now they're not <laughs> so much. In the sort of oh, they're, they're not as trendy as they Not are. as trendy. As They've got a bit more. Got a bit more sort of ordinary, I suppose. I'm just curious. I want to have a look. I went one wandering around quite a bit during lockdown, just sort of wandering. Yes. And it was very interesting just to sort of watch. 
I generally like south of the river. Were you born south of the no, river? No, I wasn't. I was actually born in uh, Oxford. Okay. But you are now very much a Londoner, would you say? Uh, um, I suppose so. I are like you a it Londoner while you're in London? Yeah, I think are a Londoner while in London. Uh, and are you a Canadian while you're in Canada? No, I'm not really a Canadian. Okay. Are you Brazilian when you're in Brazil? Yeah, because I sound like I'm Brazilian, but okay. I don't. I don't. Sound, I'm not. But I'm too tall. Okay. Or <laughs> no, I can mimic the accent from where I was from. So li lived for a while. So I sound Brazilian. Okay. But uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Where am I from? Probably English speaking. I would stick to. Okay. All right, well, Alicia, we've, we've talked for a long time. Okay. <laughs> um, and we've walked, and, and I, I very much you salute you having to walk in this cold wind that I've made you walk for hours, and I hope it all comes out clearly for the podcast. We can, this way. We can go into some sheltered area. Yes. But, um, so is there anything else you'd like to... Um, oh, yeah, just quickly, if anybody wants to look you up uh, or learn a bit more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Oh, I do. This is a horrible question. Um, because it's like, uh... So, I tell you what, is it okay that I put on the show notes how people can get it? Get yeah, it's would probably... Uh, find, find out a little bit more about you. Basically what I googled and found. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll do that. Use okay. that, yeah. Because I don't have a website at the moment. I'm, I realised with sort of, oh no, I'm going to have to do one. So. <laughs> But you are on are on quite a few. Anyway, yeah, I am. So I, that's the thing. I'm on uh, ResearchGate Academia, Twitter, yeah. Instagram, all those things. All those things. Can, can I put Instagram and yeah. Twitter on? Yeah. Okay, I'll do that. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me on the Travelling Through podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been very inspiring, and I've learned a lot about you. Even though we used to have long chats in the bookshop. We never really got in-depth too much, did we? There was just too many other things going on. So thank you for taking the time to walk and talk with me. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you also. I really enjoyed your bookshop. It was just like I could sort of dive into other parts of the world, sort of in the warmth and sort of especially when the winter time. It was like, oh, it's great. I can sit here and just like look in sort of sun escapism down into the yes. little avenues. Well, that's lovely to know that everybody has fond memories of, of the bookshop uh, as, as do I <laughs> but anyway to all the podcast listeners out there I hope you've enjoyed the podcast episode today with Alicia and you've been inspired if you have enjoyed it please do share with your friends please do subscribe to the traveling through podcast that would be great and give us a review if you have time that would be wonderful there'll be another podcast episode coming out next week but for now take care and thanks for listening